a few things that I'd like to say is uh, to the people that are watching on YouTube is that we now have live streaming in the church, which means that you can come on and you can actually watch live. And uh, that is at superiorword.org backslash live. And I'll put that on the video as well. Um, and uh, so if it's something that you want to attend there or if you want to attend our Thursday night Bible study. We have it from 5 o'clock until 6.30 every Thursday night. And uh, we make it very fun. It's not stuffy uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, uh, most of the things we do end up on the uh, blackboard over there. And uh, so it, it's a fun Bible study. And the people that have attended during our tests of the live streaming have enjoyed it. Our sermon today is from Ruth 1. It's verses 6 through 14. And I hope you enjoyed that, that Ruth sermon last week. I, you know, this, this book is so utterly touching. And as I said, we're not going to be going through a lot of the, the pictures of what it's, it's uh, intending to show us until later as we get through uh, later in the book of Ruth. It's more the cultural aspects of what we're going to look at and more of the historical aspects. So there's not a lot of life applications and the like. But just the story itself is so astonishingly beautiful. And uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope that you'll continue to enjoy these Ruth sermons because it is, it is to me the most touching book of the Old Testament. But uh, today we're going to have Ruth 1, 6 through 14, bread in the land of promise. So let me go ahead and read you those verses. Then she arose, that would be Naomi, uh, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And then they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, last week we saw the miserable state that Naomi found herself in after 10 years in Moab. Her husband and both of her sons had died, and she was left alone with her two daughters-in-law. The story continues now with news from Israel that will impel her to make the move back to her homeland. She's probably sat and she's talked with this about her daughters-in-law many times in the past, and they had probably made conversation about actually going back with her when she went. We all do this type of thing, saying things as if they will happen when the probability is that they never will. It's a way of filling time and filling our minds with hopes that please our thoughts. With her time to move at hand, though, the reality of those idle conversations will now either be proven true or false. Certainly, there was no malicious intent in either, in either daughter-in-law, but just the wistful ruminations that would never really come to the point of being realized. But during all that time and through the moments of sadness and heartache, a preparation was being made for either of the girls who would really presume to make a move back with Naomi. God has a way of making us hope for what is better by handing us difficulties in the present. Matthew Henry sums it up this way. 
earth is made bitter to us, that heaven may be made dear. Think about that. Life in Moab was made bitter for Naomi and her daughters-in-law in order to hopefully make their hearts long for a pleasant return to the land of promise. And it did. Naomi is ready to return home. Our text verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 11. It's the sixth verse. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, meaning God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In the coming verses, we will see Naomi bless her daughters-in-law in the name of the Lord. But in order to receive such a blessing, it means that they must seek him. They will be tested by Naomi and her words to them as to whether their devotion is sincere or not. If it is, then their reward will certainly come. What will seem like an honest plea by Naomi for them to depart from her is actually a plea for them to consider well the road they plan to take. The same is true for us who understand that following Christ doesn't always mean prosperity, wealth, and health, as many churches like to teach in the world today. Instead, God has granted affliction to his apostles and to all of his faithful followers throughout the past 2,000 years. If we simply open our eyes to history, it should be apparent that we are bound to face such trials from him as well. If we do, will we still be willing to follow him? Let us resolve in our hearts right now to follow the Lord no matter what. No matter what happens, let's just purpose in our hearts to follow him. And the best way to do that is to know him intimately and to trust him implicitly. The way we come to do both of these is through knowing his superior word. And so let's turn to that beautiful word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first two are very short. The first is, the Lord visited his people, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Well, this verse takes us back to verse 4 of last week, which said, and they dwelt there about 10 years. The word for dwelt, as we learned, meant literally to sit. Now the time for sitting has ended, and so the Hebrew says she stood up. The imagery is exciting, and it shows us that activity lies ahead. And so she arises with her daughter-in-law. Again, the Hebrew term is very descriptive. The word for daughters-in-law is actually chaloteha, which means brides. She stood up with her brides. And that doesn't mean her brides literally, but the brides of her sons. It is with the two of them that she arises and begins her return from Moab. And there's a reason why she is now engaged in this course of action, which is, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Somehow, and without the Bible further explaining it, word came to her that the famine was over and it was time to return. And the reason is given that the Lord Jehovah had visited his people by giving them bread. The word Lord there is the Hebrew word Yehovah, or Jehovah as we might call it. Naomi has stayed no longer in this foreign land than his necessity required her to. Again, as in verse 1, the term Sadeh, or the fields of Moab, is used. This is another indication that the story was written in Israel because the term Sadeh is used when speaking of foreign countries. We are asked to view these events from the perspective of the people who are the redeemed of the Lord, from that point of view, we are to look at how he deals with such events. The Hebrew word here translated as visited is the word pakad. 
It is a word which has no comparable single word in the English to describe it, and so it has to be described kind of in a multitude of words. It indicates overseeing or looking into a matter and then attending to it. In other words, the Lord divinely looked into the affairs of Israel and attended to the famine which had gone on for so long by giving them abundance once again. Because the book of Ruth is an insert story showing God's attendance to the affairs of mankind in order to meet his redemptive purposes, then it can be rightly assumed that the entire scenario of the move to Moab, the marriage of these women, and then the sending of the news to Naomi that the famine had ended was completely and surely for the purpose of directing the events of the book of Ruth. The famine, the death, the marriages, the next two deaths, and even the ending of the famine were all designed to bring about the events to come in the verses and the chapters ahead in the book of Ruth. Real people and real circumstances were used by the sovereign God to give us a look at this story. So imagine the importance of the words that we're looking at right now. Verse 7, Therefore she went out from the place where she was. Having stood up from her ten years sitting, she next went out from the place where she was. It is a very descriptive sequence of events which has taken place. The words are used to help us actually move inside of the events and to mentally move ourselves with them as they move. Verse 7 goes on, And her two daughters-in-law with her. As Naomi arose, so arose the two daughters-in-law. It is an indication that the house that they've been living in for these past 10 years is merely a temporary residence, and it is now to be abandoned by all three of them. Verse 7 goes on, And they went on the way to the return to return to the land of Judah. Only Naomi actually came, and so only she can actually return. If the other two were to go, it would not be as a return unless they went with her. Instead, it would be a journey that's commencing. They had probably talked about this moment many, many times and said that when she left, of course, they would go with her. And now they have arisen to walk with her at least a portion of the way. But there is nothing yet to suggest that it is a true commitment to go to Judah with her. The words of the Bible are spoken to us so that we may have peace in this world where we live. They reveal the heart of God seen in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit, who to us he does give. In the world you will have tribulation, it is true, but be of good cheer as on the difficult road you trod. Jesus has overcome the world and his peace he grants to you, peace and contentment sent from our glorious God. Be not despondent at the woe which does surround. Wait patiently on the Lord through each test and trial, and he will shower you with blessings to astound. The difficulties will end after a short while. Our second thought today is the blessing of the Lord, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. For however long they walked with Naomi, if they were to return and remain in Moab, there would have to be a point where the walk would end and they would eventually turn around. Each step forward would be a burden on her, knowing that each step required another step back in the opposite direction, and so finally she lets them know that it has been far enough. Her words to them are, return each to her mother's house. And yet, in the next chapter, we'll see that Ruth's father is still alive. The word wording here is intended not to mean that the mother in Moab was the leader of the house, but to show that she, Naomi, isn't their mother, and that they have mothers who are awaiting them. In return to the mother would be a return to the comfort and the solace of a welcoming and familiar refuge. Naomi 
wanted this for them rather than the privations that they would expect in Israel. As widows, they would be extremely poor and they would be dependent on the charity of the people for their livelihood. There is no fault in Naomi here, as many scholars try to infer. They will say that she's doing wrong to these daughters by having them not come to be a part of the covenant people. But the next half of verse 8 shows that that is a poor analysis. Here's what she says. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The marriage of a woman implied that she was uniting herself to the religion of her husband. In turning back to Moab, it would imply that they were no longer bound to that faith. But Naomi's simply understood theology was that the Lord was the one true God and that he reigned not only in Israel, but in Moab as well. Her words then are a pronounced blessing on them as an acknowledgement of his sovereignty. In her plea, she asked Jehovah to deal with these two faithful daughters-in-law just as they had dealt with her. It is an exemplary note of their attentive care to her through her many trials and many sadnesses. For those who are interested in these type of things, and this I love this type of thing, this verse here contains a little peculiarity in the Hebrew. The pronoun which should be feminine is actually masculine. A literal translation says, The Lord make masculine grace upon you as you have done masculine with the dead and me. It should be feminine. In fact, there are nine instances of gender discord in chapter one alone, and seven of them are spoken by Naomi. Other gender peculiarities are found elsewhere in the book as well. These then are trying to tell us something, either directly or in the pictures that they present. In invoking the name of the Lord, she is here relying on his providence towards them. These two women married into the faith of Jehovah, and so through their kindness to her sons, she is pronouncing this blessing. No fault, but rather great faith is actually found in Naomi. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. It is the second of a twofold blessing where the divine name of the Lord, meaning Jehovah, is invoked. Instead of saying, may God do these things, she again, this second time, invokes the name of the Lord Jehovah. When this title is used, it is speaking of the one who monitors the covenant and the covenant people. In the first blessing, she asks that the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And now she explains what that first general blessing meant by giving specifics. She asks the Lord grant that they may find rest each in the house of her husband. The term the house of her husband then is used in a locative manner. The natural but unstated question would be, where will they find rest? And the answer is given. The place where you will find rest is in the house of your husband. What she is implying is that they have tended to her with the same care that she had when her husband died and then her sons had died as well. Her petition is that the Lord would repay them in kind for this kindness. Understanding this verse right here in connection to where Ruth ultimately finds rest and what it pictures is one of the secret keys of the book of Ruth and it is ultimately pointing to our own place of rest united with the person of Jesus Christ. The fourth chapter of Hebrews shows us the fulfillment of this petition of Naomi for her daughters as fulfilled in him. It is when we believe in the work of Jesus Christ that we enter into his rest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, the third verse. Understanding this gives us an advanced insight into what the book of Ruth is actually picturing. Verse 9 continues, So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. In the customary Hebrew way, there is a preposition before the pronoun, 
And so it reads, Vetisak la hen, and she kiss to them. It shows the passionate imparting of herself to these two cherished daughters-in-law. And in response, it says that they lifted up their voices and wept. Unlike our Western way of trying to hide emotions, the opposite is true in the Middle Eastern cultures. If you ever go there, you'll notice it right away. There is an unbridled showing of emotion during instances like this, and the term lifted up their voices and wept is certainly not an understatement. There is true sadness, and it is being truly vocalized by these women. Verse 10, And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. They must have talked about this before they left, saying, Of course, we'll go with you. And she would surely have said, No, it's better for you to stay. You know, it's, it's better for you. Your families are here. But whether these daughters were actually serious or not could not be determined until now. Were they merely being polite and respectful? Or did they really, really, really intend to go all of the distance and start a new life in a new land? Where words fail, actions will tell the truth, and it is now time to determine which is which. Come to me, all you who labor, come to me. You who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Put your confidence in my words, and truly, you will find your soul is eternally blessed. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here your souls will find rest eternally. Yes, my peace and my rest to you I will impart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I will return you to the long-lost garden of delight. Our third thought today is turn back my daughters, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 begins with, But Naomi said, Turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Her statement is uh, direct and her question is obvious. What would be the point of going with her? She's a widow, and therefore she is destitute of anything except the house or land that her husband left in Israel before the famine. Without a husband to take care of the house and to work in the field, she would be left poor, without an income, and wholly dependent on the goodness of others and whatever the law provided for, and the law does provide for widows. It would be a bleak and meager existence, and she was hoping to keep them from the same sad lot. And it was a lot which would be unexpected to change, as we see in the continuation of verse 11. Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Well, this probably seems like an odd thought to us today. What possible difference could that make? But in the custom and the culture of the times, her statement is one which is perfectly understood. Going all the way back to Genesis 38, we see the practice of what is known as a leveret marriage. That comes from the Latin term lever. It is where a brother-in-law would fulfill the responsibilities to the wife of the dead brother. This was adopted later in a form pe peculiar or particular to Israel into the law of Moses itself. That was concerning land inheritances and a family name, and it is recorded in Deuteronomy 25. I want to read this to you. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. Before the time of the law, though, this was still a culturally mandated practice. And it is more in line with what Naomi is referring to now. In Genesis 38, Judah had three sons. The oldest, a guy named Ur, had a wife named Tamar. He died before Tamar had children, and so she was given the second son 
to raise up a child in Ur's name. The second son refused to adhere to this custom, and so the Lord killed him because of what he did. The third son, a little guy named Shelah, was never given to her. This resulted in events that finally ended with Judah becoming the father of her child without even realizing it. That account is directly tied to this account in Ruth, as we're going to see later. Naomi is telling them that she has no children in her womb that could come forth and fulfill this cultural obligation. Verse 12, turn back my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. She's now going to begin a series of justifications for the daughters to consider and to act on concerning a return to their homes. She's already asked rhetorically if she has any sons in her womb. The answer is surely no. Now she tells them that she is too old to have a husband. Now, although this certainly isn't literally true, it is culturally so. She's older, she has already had a husband, and she's had children. And she's beyond the age where any normal possibility within her culture would indicate that a man would be interested in her. She's an elderly lady by society standards, and she's poor on top of that. And so it's an obvious conclusion based on her situation. Verse 12 goes on, If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons... Now she raises the level of concern even higher. Suppose that even against the odds of culture and situation, she were to tell them, yeah, I got hope. Come to Israel with me because I have a man who will marry me. Even if this were the case, would she still be able to meet the other obstacles that they're facing? The first is obvious. Would she have children at all? Or is she past the age where that would happen? Secondly, what if she remained barren even after she was of childbearing age? So the first option was, what if she is past that age? But what if she is within that age and she still remains barren? And thirdly, what if she had daughters instead of sons? And fourthly, even if she had sons, would they be like Judah's son, Onan, who refused to fulfill their roles to their dead brothers? The logical conclusion is that there was way too much that would stand in the way of her bearing sons that could actually fulfill this levirate responsibility to either one or both of the daughters. Verse 13, would you wait for them until they were grown? And on top of all of the other uncertainties comes another one which they must personally consider. As she speaks, she states it in parallel thoughts. First, would they be willing to wait despite all of the other unknowns that arise? Even if everything worked out in an exact and perfect manner, would they be willing to wait the many years that were necessary for one of her sons to mature enough to fulfill this duty, right? The questions have been raised to the highest level of impossibility in any possible scenario. In the case of hoping for something from Naomi in regards to family life, there was nothing but her friendship left. And as she was older, it would become an increasingly one-sided relationship as the daughter or daughters would eventually have to take over more and more responsibilities as Naomi aged. And as a side note, this part of verse 13, it's another gender discord. It's difficult to translate because the term for them, meaning as would you wait for them, meaning sons, is actually feminine. It's not, it's, uh, yeah, it's feminine. It's not masculine. The son should be masculine. And so that doesn't make any sense. Many translators now translate this as, would you therefore wait till they were grown? The word would then be an Aramaic term, therefore, instead of a Hebrew term for them. And I know that's a lot of information there, but it's very interesting what's going on in these subtle hints which are given in the Hebrew text itself. 
I was uh, reading a commentary by a professor of Hebrew at a university, and he reads the book of Ruth to his uh, students every single year, and then they do a study on it. And year after year after year after year, nobody has come to a conclusion why these gender discords are in the book of Ruth. And every time somebody thinks they have an answer, it's found out that it's not because they're very, very peculiar and they don't all sync. So whatever is going on in here is something that God wants us to learn from. And I've been thinking about it night after night after night. And until we finish this book, hopefully we'll get some insights into it. But these are things that are very important that are included in the book of Ruth that you wouldn't get in your normal English translation. Verse 13 goes on. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? This is the second half of those parallel thoughts. First she said, would you wait until they were grown? And then she heightens it for them to consider further. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? The first thought conveys the idea of time and patience, something that these girls might have. But the second conveys the idea of human nature and our personal urges, which either exist or may arise due to circumstance. The second is decidedly harder to withstand. It is one thing to wait for something without any external pressures being applied. And I'll give you an example. A person that's in jail will patiently wait to be reunited to his wife because no other opportunity exists. But it's another thing to wait for something while being tempted in the process. The wife, who is not in jail, will wait impatiently and possibly unfaithfully simply because opportunity exists. A man that's war, at war, he's fighting in Germany. He's a faithful husband as long as he's on the front lines and he's shooting his gun. But once he gets his leave and he goes off to France for two weeks, circumstances are bound to change. King David himself found this out when he stayed home from the battle one fateful spring, as we all know, changed his entire life. And so in the verse here, she uses a word which is found only here in the entire Hebrew Bible. It is the word agan, and it, tra it is translated as restrain. What it means is to shut oneself in or to shut oneself off. In other words, it implies that they would completely isolate themselves from having a man and would remain in their unwedded state as they were now. Naomi is asking them to consider everything very, very carefully and not to make a sudden decision which will forever change their futures and their relationships. She's being wise, she's being just, and she's being noble in presenting to them the exact nature of what they're contemplating. If they were to come along with her, there would more probably be inconvenience rather than good times. There would probably be poverty rather than abundance, and there would be expected sadness beyond any hope of joy. She is asking them to take stock in the situation before committing. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus himself did when confronted by those who wanted to share in his ministry. In Matthew chapter 8, we read this. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head take stock. Are you really willing to follow me? And even more to the point is the certainty that the family had told both of these women about the God of Israel. Despite the famine and the move and despite the death of her husband and her sons, Naomi was returning to the land that he had given them. If you wonder why she was so intent on dissuading them from accompanying her back home, even when she was determined to go, it was in to absolutely ensure that they were doing it not only for her sake, but for the sake of the religion that they had heard of 
and which they had joined themselves to when they married those sons. Beyond all of the hardships and beyond all of the sadness, there was said to be a God who is over Israel who transcends difficulties and who is much less interested in temporary affection and excitements than he is to a faithful commitment from his people. It is a novel and fun thing to go to a foreign land. Yes, I've done it many times myself. But what kind of allegiance is there when the novel turns to mundane? Naomi is above all else asking them to look to the strength and sincerity of their commitment to the Lord God of Israel, something she and her family had taught them, but which would need to be tested in a long race of endurance filled with many trials. And this is exactly what Jesus referred to when he was uh, confronted by those who followed him. See how what he says here reflects this sentiment between Naomi and her daughters-in-law from Matthew chapter 10. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Were these two girls here worthy of the God of Israel? Were they ready to give up on father and mother and pursue him and him alone? One more time, Naomi shows them that being a follower of this God does not always mean pleasure and prosperity, but it also means there are times when his hand is against you. And so she utters her final words of warning as verse 13 continues. No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The New King James Version, which I use for sermons, doesn't really give the correct sense here. The words are literally translated, for it is bitter to me exceedingly beyond you. The daughters had suffered bitterly at the loss of their husbands, no doubt about it, but Naomi had suffered more. She had lost her husband and her two sons. And now the suffering is expected to continue, and it would continue to be more grievous to her than to them. Whether they came with her or whether they parted, her, her uh, state and her lot really wouldn't change at all. And in fact, either way, her lot would probably get a lot worse. If they stayed, she would be separated from these two daughters that she had come to love. If they came, then she would continue to suffer knowing that they too were suffering because of their love for her. Any course of action that she could imagine would only bring heartache. And the heartache was directly from the God that she was going back to. Is this something that they were willing to accept? A God that would allow this? But she's adamant that it was because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Jehovah, her God, was the cause of her bitterness. Would they be willing to follow a God who allowed both joy and adversity? It was a question that Job himself answered. After all of the calamities that he endured, he faced a decision as to whether he should abandon his faith or not. Here's the account from Job chapter 2. If you know chapter 1 and 2 of Job, he went through immense trials and suffering. And here's his final answer. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Would one or both of these daughters act in the same vein of faith that she's acting in? Verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. The emotions here really are beyond words to describe them. 
just as they are when we're at the funeral of a loved one or the parting of lovers maybe at wartime. We can only understand the emotion when we have lived through that particular emotion and known the feelings from personal experience. These three women who had endured so much were now faced with their inevitable choices. There could be no more delay than this time of weeping. When it ended, the choices would be realized. If the weeping would endure forever, it would hold back the reason that the weeping had come. But it couldn't. Verse 14 goes on, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Implied in this right here is the Middle Eastern custom of kissing upon saying goodbye. Orpah has lived up to the name that she was given at birth. Her name Orpah means mane or the back of the neck. As she walked away, this is the last of what they saw of her. The word from which her name comes is the Hebrew word oref. As an interesting pattern, this same word oref is used in Jeremiah chapter 48 when speaking of Moab in a manner similar to Orpah's turning back to Moab now. Here's what it says there. They shall wail how she is broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab shall be a derision and a dismay to all those about her. Instead of going to the land of Israel and seeking out the face of God who gives both blessing and hardship at his will, she turned her neck from God to that which is not God and departed from the annals of history except as is recorded in this chapter of the book of Ruth. The act of kissing is a very, very rare thing in the Bible. Only two kisses are mentioned in the entire book of Ruth, and both of them have occurred during these eight verses. The first was as Naomi kissed her daughters after she blessed them in the name of the Lord Jehovah. The second is here when Orpah gives her farewell kiss to her mother-in-law and to the hope of Israel. There is a contrast between the two, but there is also a confirmation that God has granted us free will to pursue him. Orpah made her choice and Ruth will make hers and each of us must make our own. God does not force his will upon us, but he gives us the choice to either earnestly seek him or to turn from him. Orpah chose poorly. However, Ruth chose another course, which is the finishing of our verses today, but Ruth clung to her. In contrast to Orpah, who continued to fade into the distance on that dusty road in Moab, Ruth clung steadfastly to Naomi. Though at this time Naomi could hardly say, be said to live up to her name, which is the pleasantness of the Lord, Ruth was willing to endure the bitterness along with her. In fact, the word clung that they use here is the Hebrew word debak. It is the same word used in Genesis 2 verse 24 when speaking of the relationship between a man and his wife. It is also the same word used in the 63rd Psalm to describe the person who is absolutely determined that they will follow the Lord. Here's what he says. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So are you willing to say that to God himself? My soul clings to you so tightly. A good way for us to think of Ruth's grasp here is when something actually sticks like glue. It is a binding which reflects permanence. Despite the many trials that lay ahead, Ruth was willing to endure the hand of the Lord through good or through trial. She was steadfast in her heart. And so Ruth also fulfilled her name, or at least one aspect of her name in this story. Her name in one sense means friend or companion, and she proved that she is such a friend, one who would stick closer than any bond, but death itself could separate. Orpah may have loved Naomi, and Naomi's words testify that she was a faithful daughter-in-law, but her love was not so deep 
is to overlook the trials that one might face in a walk towards the land of promise. Like her, many look at the value of heaven and they decide that it's simply not worth the walk to get there. They cannot find the strength and the resolve to forsake family, home, addictions, or pride in order to walk by the Lord's side. They may love him just as Orpah loved Naomi, but they love him as an unattainable idea and not as a savior that's worth giving up life itself for. In the end, there are only one of two directions that we can go. One is towards the face of God, which is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, or we can turn our neck and we can go in the opposite direction. The first leads to eternal life. The latter ends in eternal separation. And we were talking about this before the uh, service today in our Bible study is that uh, there was a guy that ISIS was filming. As uh, you know, ISIS is out there right now martyring people and chasing Christians out of their homeland that they've been there for 2,000 years. And they filmed one of them. A guy was uh, had a gun to the back of his head and they said, we want you to renounce Christianity or we're going to kill you. And so he did. He said, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his only prophet. And then they cut off his head anyway. And I thought, what a shame that the last thing that happened to that man was a renunciation of Jesus. Now, he may have been saved and he may have actually just been weak in his faith. Or he may have been a nominal Christian like people in churches all over the world today that have no faith at all and they're just playing church. But I think what a sad commentary that the last words of his life were renouncing the only hope that man has for eternal life, which is found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And this choice belongs to each one of us, so choose wisely. If you've never made the commitment to this wonderful Savior who came to lead us back to the land of delight, which we lost so very long ago, I would ask that you would allow me a moment to tell you how you can. Let me tell you what Jesus did for you. The Bible says that we have sin in our lives, and that sin separates us from God. It makes it absolutely certain that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And then it tells us that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. There's the physical death that comes as a natural result of spiritual death, but the Bible is actually speaking about spiritual death. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses, and we're separated from God because of that. And there's no hope for man apart from Jesus Christ. So what did he do? God stepped out of his eternal realm and he united with flesh in the womb of Mary. And he became a living, breathing human being, just like us. And he lived that perfect life that you and I cannot live. And he replaced the fallen deeds of Adam, which we inherit. And so he gives us a choice. You can stay in Adam and you can stay separated from me. Or you can put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, if you trust in me, he says, I will give you eternal life. Fountains of living water will come out of you. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all that he wants is just a simple profession that you cannot save yourself. You understand that and that you need Christ to save you. And he'll regenerate you, give you that eternal life that you lack, and you will live forever. Though this physical body will die, your spirit will live forever, and he will unite it someday with a new body that will never wear out. I'll be 50 tomorrow. And boy, my body is wearing out really quickly, I'll tell you that. But I don't, I don't care at all. You know what, if they come and we were talking about that, who here would be willing to die if somebody came in and asked us to re, you know, renounce our faith in Christ today? And everyone in that Bible study said, I would gladly let this life go. There's nothing here for me. 
I mean, it's fun to eat a banana and it's sweet to have figs, but my goodness, there's nothing compared to seeing the face of Jesus Christ. So please make that commitment if you have never done it. I got a closing verse for you today from Psalm 108. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Wonderful. Next week is Ruth 1, verses 15 through 22. It's entitled, Returning to the Promised Land. That'll be our third Ruth sermon. And as I do each week, before I give you our final poem, which is a poem of uh, the verses that we've gone through, I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, and he is there with you through them. So cling to him, debak, like Lou, and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called One Choice, Two Paths. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country, that she might from the country of Moab return. For she had heard in the country of Moab words that made her heart churn, that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread, and so she prepared to move from Moab to Israel instead. Therefore she went out from the place where she was on that day, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and off they went on their way, to the land of Judah to return for her home her soul did yearn. And Naomi to her two daughters-in-law said, Go, return each to her mother's house, I say affectionately. The Lord deal kindly with you, my beloved, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. May you be kept. So she kissed them, and them she blessed, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her through the streaming waters, We will return with you to your people surely. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Save yourself from this gloom. Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband, as you know. If I should say I have hope this day, if I should have a husband tonight, no longer alone, and should also bear sons, I pray, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands too? No, my daughters, this I cannot ask of you, for it grieves me very much for your sakes, as you can see, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again as if a dirge was sung, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth to her tightly clung. In reality, there was but one choice to make, though down different paths it will lead. One will, cling, will one cling to the God of Israel for heaven's sake, or will they to his word pay heed? If the answer is yes, the destiny is bright and sure. If the answer is no, there is no true hope at all. One must look to Jesus with a heart tender and pure, and on his glorious name each must call. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus our Lord. Thank you for the chance to walk in his light. Help us all our days to hold to your word until you bring us home to the land of delight. Until that day, we will praise our Lord Jesus, who has done such marvelous things for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gift, which is Jesus our Lord. And we thank you also for these beautiful stories, which are, they're, they're sad, they're, they're almost depressing at points, and then all of a sudden you turn around and you show the marvel of what you were doing. And I think of Naomi, every time I've come to this passage, and I think, how could this woman have 
even imagine what is coming in the days ahead for her. The sadness, the trials, mm -hmm. the woe, and now she's got to face more as she's leaving this one daughter-in-law and carrying another one back with her in a state of misery. And yet you're going to work it all out for their good and for your glory. And help us to understand that in our own lives, God, that we do have trials and we do have troubles and we have things that we just don't understand. And yet we need to be confident that those things are being worked out in a way which will show us your divine hand was with us all along. Thank you for that assurance that is given in your word that this is true. Help us to cling to it. Help us to rely on it during those times. Please be with each person here as they go about their uh, week ahead. Please be with Paul and Elaine as they travel this week. And uh, uh, we'll be sure to uh, remember Paul on his birthday on the 26th. And uh, uh, hopefully they'll come back safely and uh, we'll be reunited with them. But even better would be that you would come back for all of us, maybe even in the next five minutes. Wouldn't that be great? We love you and we praise you. We give you glory and we do so in the exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. While we're getting ready, I'd like to remind you that the uh, Lord's Supper is specifically, and the words are in here, you're going to hear me say them, the Lord's Supper is specifically as a remembrance of Jesus' death until he comes. That's why we do this, is we are honoring the work that he did. And then after living that perfect life, which he could have lorded over us and said, see, I did it, why can't you do it? Instead, he gave that life up for us. And so that's why we take communion, is to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the glorious work that you have done for us. We don't deserve it. There's nothing that we could ever do to deserve this, and yet he lavishes it upon us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is from the hands of Paul. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of, I'm sorry, uh, who brought forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let's take a moment and just reflect before the Lord.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so, so much for the opportunity to come and share in the Lord's Supper, to remember what you did for us. Help us to carry this with us in our souls all through the week, and talk to you, and to fellowship with you every step that we take. You're never out of, our, uh, out of reach. You're always right there for us, and you're there mediating our heart and our thoughts to your Father. And so we ask that you just be with us and help us to remember that, that we can talk to you anytime and to give you glory and honor. We love you, we praise you, and uh, we look forward to a, a week ahead full of excitement and adventure and fellowship with you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.